Hello, everybody, and welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast. My name is Thomas Frank, and this is a show that helps you become a more effective student. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about a topic that often gets glossed over on these more productivity and solution-based shows, and that's the general idea and practice of being happy. Now, my guest on today's show is Neil Pasricha, who is a guy that was introduced to me by my good friend Chris Bailey, who wrote The Productivity Project and, if you'll remember, has been on the show a couple of different times. And I just got to give a big shout out to Chris and thank him for introducing me to Neil because Neil is absolutely awesome and I love this conversation we had. It is such a fun talk and uh, Neil is a really cool guy. Neil is a guy who, um, number one, is the author of a book I read recently called The Happiness Equation, which started out as a letter to his unborn son because his wife is currently pregnant and from there just started ballooning into an entire book as he added more ideas and experiences and things that he had been thinking about for years about the entire concept of happiness. Because Neil is honestly a really successful guy. He's got a TED Talk that has over 2 million views. He has written two books at this point. He's a Harvard MBA, was an executive at Walmart, and speaks all over the globe at companies and schools, talks to all kinds of other successful people. And one thing that he told me he noticed is that a lot of really successful people, executives, business owners, what have you, they're not happy. They're very successful, they got a lot going on, but they don't really feel satisfied in their lives. So he started to think about this really seriously, and all those thoughts culminated in this book. Now, I gotta say, I really enjoyed reading The Happiness Equation, and it's going to go on my list of essential books for students because I have been in many places during my life where I prioritize work, I prioritize external statistics and goals and achievements, and I don't think about the things that make me truly happy on a daily basis. I don't prioritize my relationships quite as much as I should. I don't prioritize creating space in my life quite as much as I should. So even if some of the ideas in the book were already known to me, I thought that it was very good to read over them again and have them stated explicitly to me because it brings them back to the forefront of my mind and makes me start putting them into action and making them a priority in my life. And that's just one of the reasons I really like this book. So this conversation with Neil goes through some of the ideas in the book, some of the ones that I really thought were really compelling, but I don't want to try to put the conversation into a box too much because it's also just an organic talk between two people. And uh, honestly, I really, really enjoyed it. Now, just to give you a bit of a heads up, this is one of those conversations that started the moment I clicked connect on Skype. And then I realized a little bit later down the line that I needed to actually introduce him and start recording. So the intro is a little bit awkward, but uh, we get over that very quickly. And I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation. If you want to find the show notes, you can find them over at CIGpodcast.com. Find the episode 117 link on the page and you'll find links to all the resources, books, the TED Talk, and everything else that we mentioned in the episode, along with ways to rate and review the show on iTunes if you want to support it. So that is all I've got for this intro. Hopefully you enjoy this interview with Neil. Neil, welcome I, to the I, show. Oh, well, oh, thanks for having me here. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for being on the that show. That would be funny if that was 10 minutes in. Yeah, and you know what? It might be. Sometimes I just lead in. Sometimes yeah. I try to make it more professional. Um, well, you're easy to talk to, so that you make it very natural. Well, thank you. So in, in case I cut the show to start right here, I'll let the listeners know. We were talking about this uh, this fascination you have with Yet. Mm, um, yeah. Interestingly, my mom asked me the other day, she's like, what do you think about kids? Like, what are you thinking about? And 
I tried to word this in like the most accurate way possible because right now I don't want kids, but I'm aware of the fact that my desires may change. So for me, it was like, I don't want kids. And right now my current self doesn't ever want kids, but I'm aware of the possibility that five, even five years down the line, it might change. Wow. That is so aware that you were able to word it like that because Daniel Gilbert, who wrote Stumbling on Happiness in 2006, kind of the, the, the book of the, of the genre sort of thing in the happiness world, and he's done a ton of more great research since then. He says, you know, one of our greatest inabilities as people is to predict our own future. We always assume that our lines will go straight, straight up, straight down, straight flat, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. And we can't predict these, what, how you just put it, my future self may change his mind. Um, that's very difficult for people to do. And there's a great book uh, I just finished reading called The Black Swan by Nassim Taleb. Oh, yeah. You know that book? And it's like, you know, it also puts forth the theory that the world is just so random and so chaotic that most people, when they're older, look back and say, you know what? If I hadn't have decided to go to the movies that specific night, you know, even though I was up late studying for an exam the next morning, but like just my body said, you have to come to see Star Wars. I wouldn't have met Linda. And now we've been married 70 years. Oh my like, God. You, you know what I mean? And you always hear those stories. And by the way, whoever's listening to this and doing the math, like, yes, I realized Star Wars didn't come out 70 years ago. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, my, but my point is like in your own life, it's actually a, a, a certain amount of small events that disproportionately affect what happens to you. And the fact that you can be aware and allow for that to happen, I think lets you live a happier life because now you are more open to the world and to possibilities. You might live in a different country. You could follow a different major. You could meet someone at that event that you're not planning to meet anyone at. And that is just such a great prescription to happiness. I don't talk about that at all in any of my writing on happiness, but like, it's just something that I have in the back of my head as like a, a way to live that I think you, you nicely tapped into. Yeah. Well, for your next book, you can call it the serendipity principle. I think it sounds Ah. good, (laughs) but I have a story just like that. Let's hear. Um, I've been with my girlfriend for coming up on four years now and she's absolutely amazing. The way that I met her is my roommate was the president of the anime club at our school. And, uh, I'll watch anime every once in a while, but I'm not a huge fan of it. So I never went. But they were holding this like end of the or middle of the year party, like a Halloween party. I think it was at the university. I decided not to go because I don't go to the club. But like an hour into the party, you didn't have a spirited away costume. I didn't No, But (laughs) so that's a little bit of a, a marker to put in here. Later on in the night, my other roommate and me were bored. So we were like, let's just show up at the party and bug our roommate, who's the president, just for fun. And we go. And they had a room set up with like this video game I really like to play where you like dance on this mat with four arrows and I'm embarrassingly good at it. So I played it and this girl says, will you marry me like as a joke? And I said, maybe. And then I got to talking to her and now we've been dating for four years. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's amazing. And, and, and I was I would presume in this story that you have not yet answered her engagement proposal. Well, when the literally the first word out of my mouth was maybe. So, mm-hmm. so you're still thinking about <laughs> it, it will, it will bear, it will most likely turn to yes. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be open about it. I think we're, we're still living with three roommates. It's like a very communal kind of living style right now. And I just don't think that it's the right time to move forward, but I am anticipating that it will happen. 
And like we said, and you were talking about, I'm anticipating that my wants will change, my circumstances will change, and the way I'll make decisions will change too. Listen to that. That's just such beautiful awareness. I love that. And, you know, when I was a kid, and I'm older than you, I think, I'm 36, mm-hmm. you know, I used to read Ann Landers in the in the Toronto Star, you know, like it was like the daily column, people asked for advice, and she answered them, kind of like Dear Abby. And this this feature she would always print, maybe like once a week, twice a week, was called The How We Met Story. And it was amazing to read because they were all like yours. You know, it was a, a totally random set of circumstances. But but the, the thesis, of course, is is keep your mind open. Mm-hmm. Do, you know, follow passions, dreams, ideas, and energies that just like seem to strike you because you could do – you could spend – so much money on a dream vacation and that wouldn't be as fun as camping two hours from your house. You don't know that though. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And, and so like, I think that's just a big, big recipe for letting, leaving a ha- leading a happy life. Yeah. I think that's actually a question. A lot of students would love to have some more detail on because I know we say things like a lot of things happen by chance. You have to be open to just crazy random things happening in your life. But I think there's also uh, some level of deliberateness in the choices you make that can just increase the chances of things like that happening. Because I remember before I met her, it was actually kind of a downer year and I had been single for a long time and like it was just kind of a, I don't know, depressing time. And I was like trying to go out to bars and party all the time, like hoping, oh, I hope I meet a girl, you know, and it never worked. And I always came back disappointed. And then come to find out you have to go to some dumb anime party to meet somebody randomly like for somebody who's in a situation now where they want something cool to happen but it hasn't happened yet for me to just say oh it'll happen in a completely random you know you can't predict a circumstance mm-hmm. isn't very encouraging you know if they're not there yet well i you know i to answer that and, and to talk about that a little bit more you know there's a six word model that I that I sort of have drawn out in, in the first chapter of the happiness equation. And basically I say, you know, my mom was from Nairobi, Kenya. My dad was from Amritsar, India. They came to Canada as immigrants. I live in Toronto now. Mm-hmm. They came to Canada as immigrants and they told me six words. The six words they told me were great work, arrow, big success, arrow, be happy. So great work leads to big success, which leads to being happy. And that was the model I lived my whole childhood under. You know, like you study hard, then you get good grades. And if you're East Indian like me, you go be a doctor, which I did mm-hmm. not do, but that's like the, the advice. Or you work really hard, then you get promoted, and then you're happy. And that model is pretty universal. Most people will say, yeah, my parents told me the same thing. But all the research I did for the happiness equation shows the model's totally backwards. It's related to your question. I'll share how in a minute. And I mean, and I mean totally backwards. Instead, it's be happy, arrow, great work, arrow, big success. So again, it's it's be happy first. That leads to doing great work. Productivity goes up. Creativity goes up. Sales go up. Your your learning centers stay more open. And I can talk about a study that shows that in a minute if you like. And that leads to more success down the road. So mm-hmm. for anyone struggling with like, oh, what do I do? Where should I go? I'm like, invest in yourself at the beginning. Choose to be happy up front. There are some sp- very specific, easy happiness hacks that we know that can really help us with our happiness. Things like, you know, meditation and writing down five gratitudes and journaling for 20 minutes going on a brisk 20-minute walk, doing a random act of kindness. These are little instruments that can be used on a daily basis to develop your own happiness and your positive mindset. That will enable you to be out there, to be doing great work, to be your best self, to be feel more confident and to feel more you know, engaged in the world. And so 
my high level advice for anyone listening who's like, well, how do I navigate that is it's not great work leading to big success, leading to happiness. It is happiness leading to great work, leading to big success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess if I think about that, that's, it seems like I make my best work when I'm happy and when I'm kind of just in the moment and very excited about it. And if I go into it with the thought that, oh, this needs to be the greatest thing ever, it has to get the best reaction ever, then it's usually a little bit more sterile. Yeah, and who knows if at that party you weren't just like your more natural, relaxed, you know, connected self, like you were dancing in a room. Like at at a bar, you may not have had the courage to do that or you might not have, you might have wondered if you looked funny, you know what I mean? Yes, exactly. Yeah, and because you were just yourself, the woman you're with got to see you in a really kind of natural state and... That was what she was attracted to. She was she liked you for being you. It wasn't like you were dressed up and trying to be someone else. You were yeah. you. And there's nothing better than being loved who you are in the in world in the world, and nothing worse than being loved for someone you're not, but who are pretending to be. Mm-hmm. Like and, and and I that, I just so believe that. And I think authenticity is such a big part of happiness. But the challenge most of us have is we don't know how to be authentic. We can't find our authentic selves. And everyone's saying be authentic, but how do you do that? To me, that's the bigger question. Yeah. How do you deal with when people love you for who you were, but then you find that you're changing and you're afraid Uh, that that kind of whatever you've built and you're continuing to maintain, you no longer identify with that? Well, I, I think, first of all, like we're all changing always there's that famous quote that says no man will walk through the same river twice because it's never the same mm-hmm. river and it's never the same man and i love that and i remember that i just think our rates of change slow down so right now for example i have a two-month-old son his rate of change is you know i'll go out for work i'll come home and i'll be like his eyes are a different color like i mean literally <laughs> I, I, or i'm like he has more hair than he did yesterday he doesn't fit in this these pants. He just did like six hours ago. Like its rate of change is huge. His brain is currently consuming, you know, 60 to 70% of all of his energy. Mm-hmm. And he's totally changing. People that are in college, again, fast rate of change. As you get older, you start to, your rate of change slows down. You're still changing, but less so. And there's less things that cause you to change. So for me, I got married when I was 26. And sadly, I got divorced when I was 28. My rate of change changed <laughs> and my wife's did too and she identified it. She called it out. She said, I don't think I'm in love with you anymore. I don't know why that is. I knew I was in love with you. I wish I was still in love with you, but I just know I'm not. And I think therefore that we need to get a divorce. And mm-hmm. it was when that happened, Thomas, that I that I first started into the world that I'm in where I'm talking to you today. Like I started 1000awesomethings.com. That led to the book of awesome. That led to all the sequels. Those things flew off the shelves. I realized I still wasn't happy. So then I began this new pursuit, which was how do you live a happy life? And when I met someone new, Leslie, and we got married, okay, this is flash forwarding really quick on the timeline. She told me she was pregnant on the flight home from our honeymoon on the plane. (laughs) She did the pregnancy test on the airplane in Malaysia before a 12 hour flight home. So I get home, I start writing a letter to my unborn child. And for the next year, I do tons of research. I go deep on this topic of happiness. I find out it's the thing we want the most, but have budged the least. So if you type in how to be into Google, happy is the first drop down. <laughs> mm. uh, but if you look at the largest longitudinal study on happiness since 1955, Hope College at University of Michigan, it's never budged. We, we, 20% of us are happy now. 20% of us were happy then. So 
I write this letter. It's a three, it turns into a 300-page Word document, and that Word document, that letter, is my new book. It is the happiness equation. So all that to say, your rate of change slows down. If you find yourself changing, have a conversation about it. If they love the person you are, great. If they've changed too and it's different, that's it's time to have a tougher conversation. You know, mm-hmm. will we both change back to people we both love? Are we okay with being with with people that we uh, we expect and respect the fact that they change, but like we might not know who they will become? Like I don't know. These are big questions. Relationships are complicated. Yeah. But I just mean that you're asking a great question because of course people who are listening to this and and myself included, like you just change. And in my case. That led to several breakups and 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 won a divorce on, along the way. Yeah, it, it sometimes stresses me out to think about that because I I can look back to who I was at eighteen, and the vast majority of my opinions have changed, or done complete one eighties since then. And uh, it's like that that opinion that I think everyone holds, where it's like, man, I was an idiot five years ago, but I would love to stay this age forever. Mm. yeah exactly and that's exactly the daniel gilbert research it says like we look back and say whoa look how much we've changed but we look forward and say hope i don't change Uh like it's so strange you know but that's the same rut of course that keeps somebody in a a job that they don't like for 20 years Mm -hmm. you know because there's safety security like i know the commute and i don't want to have to remortgage my house if i while i'm looking for a job and you know it is it's that sense of comfort that we built into our own worlds throughout a lot of the 70s, 80s, 90s. And now what we have to get more comfortable with is is the feeling you have. So like having that emotion, the I don't know what I'm going to be, and then saying, and I'm okay with that. And, and that's the harder emotion to build, but that's the resilience. That's the skin you need to survive these days. That's the world of trying a startup and failing and trying a company with a few friends and failing mm-hmm. and trying a job in a different city to try a different city with a different boyfriend and girlfriend and failing and beautiful because I zoom out and I say, Hey, you got a hundred years to live. Okay. The first two decades are learning decades, big learning decades. All you're doing is in school. The, the decade I'm in like the thirties, forties, fifties, those are responsibility decades. You know, it doesn't really matter what you're doing for the most part. You're holding down something steady, a job, a relationship, children, maybe all three, like my, in my case. So that one decade in the middle, the twenties is your grand experiment decade. It is the decade which you should try and do and experiment with as much as possible so that when you end up in your thirties, you have more knowledge about yourself. Yeah. I can quickly say, you know, Thomas, like in my twenties, I had a marriage that failed. I had a small business that failed and I had a corporate job that failed. Okay. Now I can say, I know what kind of culture I work good in. I know what kind of relationship I work well in. And I know what my risk profile is when it comes to entrepreneurship. Like those are three huge things for me to know in my Mm -hmm. 30s, but I wouldn't have had them if I didn't have three gigantic failures in my 20s. What is your risk profile? My risk profile is not very high. So, you know, in 2010, the Book of Awesome took off. I was starting to get paid lots of money to go around and speak. And the book, you know, royalties started flooding in. I had a full-time job at Walmart. Mm-hmm. I, re- I kept that full-time job for six more years. And, and I just quit 12 weeks ago. And oh, wow. Yeah, just brand new. So just you quit. quit after I think we like had this episode on the on the calendar. Probably. I quit in February. Wow, I okay. remember when we booked this. And, you know, and the reason I kept on that for so long was because immigrant parents have a steady job, you know, go be a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist. I had that 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 sort of mantra growing up. But, but more importantly, I discovered quickly that because of my full-time job, 
at Walmart, you know, working in the, in the head office here, I, I was able to have a lot of risk in my writing and my speaking. Mm-hmm. Like I would, I would experiment on stage. I would never put advertisements on my blog. I would write whatever I wanted. It gave me a freedom because I was, I was like, if this golden goose gets squashed, I'm good. I got a full-time job. Similarly, because that golden goose grew, that side project developed into something more, I was the risky, mouthy guy at work. Like I was blunt. I was stating mm. my opinion in meetings. And I was like going up to executives and saying like, I disagree with this. Here's why. Not I wasn't being a jerk, but I was like – I was speaking truth to power more. And as yeah. a result, when you do that in a big company, guess what? You get promoted. Mm-hmm. You know. And <laughs> when you look at the top of most companies, the executives are kind of mouthy. Right, like they they yeah. they kind of say their own opinion, regardless of whether or not they could get fired the next day. And so I found that for me personally, my risk profile was I got risk in both of my two worlds because I had the sense that you know I had the other thing supporting me if something right. went wrong with this one. Yeah, one one bad day is not going to wipe both things out. I was yeah. reading about uh, Richard Feynman, the physicist. The other yeah. Day. And apparently he was like Niels Bohr's main right-hand guy because even as a young kind of upstart physicist, he would do the same thing. He'd speak truth to power. He would be mouthy. And everyone else basically saw Bohr as, you know, this ultimate genius who would not be contradicted. Obviously, anything that comes out of his mouth is brilliant. And Bohr knew it wasn't that the case. You know, we're all human. Even if we're smart, we come up with dumb things sometimes. So he kind of took on Feynman as... I don't know if, if an apprentice is the right word, but kind of like his his main guy because Feynman was the one dude who was willing to say like, no, that's stupid, even though you're saying it. I love that. And to me, a book that everyone should read is Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, because I read that as a kid and it was just like so mind opening. And I love that, you know, it was a big part of his success. It makes sense. And when you read his book, like any good book is like just the truth, you know, mm-hmm. said, said a different way. It is so amazing that this like, Pulitzer Prize winning business kind of thing also has like funny stories about his college days and playing pranks with his frat housemates. Like that's <laughs> what the book's about. You know what I mean? And it's yeah. so, it's so, it's so humbling and it's so grounding to realize that he was just a normal guy. And mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, you realize like the reason people do speak truth to power, or if you can in a big company, it's because you realize like, wait, wait a minute, like they're putting their pants on one leg at a time, just like me. They also have worries and insecurities and doubts. You know, they're also not spending enough time with their family as they want to. And they had, a, you know, an extra chocolate bar at lunch that they kind of regret. Like, <laughs> just like me. Oh, I so love that. I just tell, why don't I just tell them what I think? I've and had a thing. In worst case scenario, they can fire me. And then I'll yeah. be okay, you know? I've had a little rule in my mind that I think I came up with this when I was doing my corporate internship during my sophomore year of college. Uh, I call it the Netflix rule. where Or maybe, maybe the Netflix principle is a better word for it. Basically... Because I had gone to a couple of conferences where I talked to like VPs and I'd gone to more entrepreneurial conferences where I got to talk to, you know, famous bloggers, quote unquote famous bloggers that I really looked up to. I've learned that that's a bit of an oxymoron as a famous blogger. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't feel famous. <laughs> no, no, you're like, I'm just kidding. And this is the thing, right? Because yeah. it's only solidified more that now some people would point to me and be like, you're a famous blogger. It's like, well, you know what I did last night? I got on my computer and I played video games. And the night before that, I watched Netflix with my girlfriend, just like you did. And that famous blogger that I looked up to did the same thing. He did his work and then he watched, I don't know, Black Mirror is the show I'm watching right now. It's the same thing, right? So there's no need for me to be super scared to see this person as like up on a pedestal because they do great work. They've built some sort of, you know, platform for themselves. 
But at the end of the day, they're putting their pants on one leg at a time and they're eating chocolate bars when they shouldn't and they're watching Netflix. Yeah, I like that. So the Netflix principle is something you kept in your own mind mm-hmm. to sort of make the people you're talking to at a more egalitarian level as you. Like you were like, they aren't on a pedestal. They're also going home and binge watching maybe an even more embarrassing show. Yeah. On Netflix, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, okay. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Like that. The, they're just like me principle. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's, it's, it's hard to do that because everything we do in our design of the world is, is meant to separate people, right? Like you, you go to the airport, there's a line if you have a fancy credit card mm-hmm. and an even more special line if you have an even more fancy credit card. And everything we do is like that. Like you walk on the plane, it's like, then there's first class, then business class and you're at the back, you know, by the bathrooms. And how do we continue to to keep that in our mind? It's powerful, and you and I are both talking about that. When again, the world seems to be conspiring, to symbolize or signal that they're not the same. Yeah. And so I, I think that just talking about it like this is is a healthy thing, but also just yeah, exactly. And then it goes the other way too, because sometimes with um, celebrities, you, you hear them complain about you know some aspect of celebrity like. I remember the old Kanye West thing, like, you know, he wrote a song about his mom passing away. And he's like, for years after people come up to me in my airport, in the airport saying like, sorry about your mom. He's like, I don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be reminded of it years later, you know? And I remember people saying like, oh, poor you, you only make $800 million. And I remember thinking like, I kind of get that that would be a hard thing. No, yeah. Uh, you know, that would be hard. And I'm sorry, but like have empathy too. So it's like, as long as you're speaking truth and power in a truthful, honest, humble way, and you also have compassion and empathy for them, then I think you'll all you'll do in a company is know whether you fit or not. And mm-hmm. if you fit, you'll fly. If yeah. you do that, that makes so much sense to me. I remember I once saw a video of Justin Bieber at a skate park skateboarding, and he would you know do a trick, and nine times out of ten he'd bail on it, and then somebody would come up and high five him, and he's like. Yeah, high five, bro. And at first I was like, oh, he's just taking over this skate park, pushing everyone else out and being not very good. But then I realized, like, actually, he's probably just there trying to skate. And because it's him, a zillion people have just stopped what they're doing and are now, you know, watching him and and kind of putting him on stage. And he probably doesn't want that, but he can't just tell them all to leave because then he's a jerk. Yeah. So no win. Yeah, exactly. oh, wow. I like that. I like that we've turned this into like a conversation about like poor Justin Bieber. That's great. <laughs> poor Justin Bieber. <laughs> poor Justin Bieber. That's a great title for the uh, podcast. That's actually, that actually <laughs> is a pretty good title. <laughs> I might have to call it that. Um, so I wanted to ask you something. We were talking about you know changing and not knowing where your future is going to go. What do you think of the question? Where do you see yourself in five years? Oh my gosh, that is so funny. Um, well, obviously, you know there is this invisible expectation that sits over all of us and it's like the what it's kind of like that question but i call it what do you want to do when you grow up Mm -hmm. okay and i worry about that question i really do because i feel like it sits invisibly over a lot of our lives it sits invisibly over our linkedin profiles and our email signatures and people are trying to like put their degrees on there like i'm part of this and that and it's like it's all a front you know, we are remarkably complicated, chaotic people with varieties of opinions and thoughts and, and, and wonders and worries. And like trying to categorize our, our, our complex selves in, into little buckets saying like alumni group and like, I like this and I like that. It, it narrows us. And so, you know, I, I think the goal in life should not be to try to articulate what you should be doing in five years. No, not at all. Mm-hmm. If, if, if anything, it should be, what do I want to learn next? 
And what yes. do I want to learn in five years? And then you get a, a great answer. You say, you know what? I'd love to learn how to program. And you know what I've always wanted to do is live in Greece and speak Greek. I don't know why. And that's fine. Maybe you read a formative book as a child that, that did that or something. And, and that's fine. But then, then you're like, I, I hope to do that one day. And I hope in my relationship, I become a better husband or a better boyfriend. I'm like really looking how to develop that. I gave a speech last week and a guy came up to me afterwards and said like, hey, I had a one-on-one question. How do you be a good dad? Like it was just like a, a heartfelt, like his eyes were kind of watering and he's like, that's the big thing he wants to learn. And I loved that because where does that fit on anyone's career plan at like a cocktail party? It doesn't. Yeah. But, but yet it might be the most profound change he could make in, the, in himself and in the world. And like, so don't try stuffing yourself into a narrow bucket of like three-letter degree things underneath your email signature. Mm-hmm. But rather try to focus and think and dream would be the word I'd underline, dream, about what you want to learn next and like let that be your guiding vision. I love that answer. Yeah, what's the next project? What's the next interesting thing? My answer has always been I have no idea what I'll be doing in five years. And I'm completely okay with that. I hope whatever it is helps people and I'm happy doing it. And I have at least some free time. Wow. Like it's that's, just a nice, been, that's, a, that's a nice little Venn diagram, those three things. Yeah, because yeah. I found like, that like, like I... Helps people circle. You like doing it or, mm-hmm. or you don't value add circle and then have some free time circle. Like overlap is the, the nice middle box. I like that. Yeah, because I, I always, I don't know. I don't know if you get like this because you're writing books now and you're. I'm guessing you're very busy speaking as well. I feel like... I have the type of brain that doesn't go, this is a project with a start date and an end date. It's more like, oh, I'm going to start doing this forever now. I'm going to do a podcast forever, video forever. And I get to the point where it's like, there's no longer any time to just tinker with stuff with, you know, no time frame, no deadline, because most of my time gets taken up by the next thing with a deadline. So I guess that's the principle I'm always trying to work toward, like give myself more time to tinker, give myself more time to build something that Uh could flower into something amazing but it doesn't have to well i love yeah and i hear there's there's a bit of a paradox there because like there's often the advice to say yes you know say yes till you're too busy and then say no like say yes to going out on friday and signing up for this random course and taking this extra class and going to that that the anime party you know until you then get so busy and so successful that you then have to then sort of forcefully say no. And I've heard, you know, there's a lot of science, you know, Tim Ferriss is great at this. Derek Sivers, who's on a number of podcasts and I, I don't know, but I just like his policy. He, he has this thing called, you know, it's either hell yes or it's a no. You know, unless you're super passionate about it, it's an automatic no. And yeah. they talk about like avoiding like the dreaded sort of coffee meetings and stuff like that that sort of, you know, wear on an entrepreneur's time. And there's a similar essay beautifully written by Paul Graham Maybe you could link to it somewhere called called Maker Schedule, Manager Schedule, which yes. talks about, you know, that one where makers like they need a free empty day to do what they're doing. Managers need meetings to monitor everything. Yet they makers usually work for managers. So if you're a manager, be careful. And if you're a maker, avoid the meetings, you know. And so all I would say to you and, and to people like me and the people listening is we have to forcibly carve space into our weeks mm-hmm. like with a with a chisel. You know, and so I do that some in some ways. I've written a contract with my wife. Like we have two young boys, okay? We have a contract. And the contract says every week I get an NNO, <laughs> Neil's night out. And every week she gets an LNO, Leslie's night out. I can do whatever I want. I can go out with a friend and see a movie. I can walk around on the streets and just like 
write notes to myself. I, I can, if I can figure out how to do it in the time, I can like go fly somewhere and have dinner with a friend or something like that. Whatever. whatever. Mm-hmm. The point is it, it gives me a night a week where I know I just have total empty space, which is a huge luxury for anyone who's listening who has two young kids. You just know that doesn't usually happen. So yeah. that's a big thing. We also have in that contract that we will spend one full day of each weekend together as a family, which means no birthdays, no family, no extended family, no nothing. Just like a full Saturday morning to the full Saturday night, just doing nothing. And that means the phone's kind of off the hook. You know, we're not on our cell phones. They're on airplane mode. Like we're just with our family. And that creates a beautiful amount of space where I find my mind starts to wander, tinker, as you said. Yeah. Also in that contract, we have a deal on how many nights a month and a year I'll be away. Nights away are, are tough for us, but mm-hmm. but they're part of what I, I'm doing now. So we have a contract around that. So these are some ways that we forcibly create space. And, you know, I didn't talk about any of the um, science behind it, but like secret number six of my book is all about the three ways you can, you can create space in your life by removing choice, time, and access from all your decisions right. to, to forcibly create tinker time. I love, I like the word tinker that you mm-hmm. used um, so that you can keep yourself open for the new projects and the new ideas and just the pure internet holes, you know, like I spent three hours a couple nights ago just reading about the endocrine system online. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm 36. <laughs> I never knew how hormones worked, like the pituitary gland. Like what is this world inside my body? I know nothing about it, but mm-hmm. I like just went into a hole and like, I, you know, I've been talking about it for like two weeks. I'm like, did you know this about the, your hormones and glands? And people are like, who the hell are you? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, sorry. I just like spent three hours when I reading about it. But, but thank God I had that time because that's tinker time, which is so yeah. stimulating to the brain and to my, to, you know, it helps everything. I think those dumb internet holes can, I mean, I have an example where one of those literally changed my life. So oh, let's hear it. You know, Hacker News, right? Paul Graham. Have you ever been on Hacker News? I know Paul Graham, but not Hacker. I, I, I just quoted his, his maker schedule manager oh, okay. schedule. But, but, but that was like Y Combinator. You know? Yeah, so Y yeah. Combinator has a news board called Hacker News. It's, right, okay. it's like Reddit, okay. but with a lot more startup-y things. And right, there was right. this thread on there. It was beginning in 2013. It was like, hey, what's the best book you read in 2012? So I was like, well, that sounds like a cool thread, a bunch of computer nerds talking about the books they read. And yeah, there's lots of programming books on there. Somebody said, I kid you not, guys, the best book I read was a Harry Potter fan fiction called Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. It's free and it was written by this AI researcher. And I was like, well, that sounds like the weirdest thing anyone could recommend. I'm going <laughs> to yeah. go check that out. Yeah, click here. So I spend all of spring break reading and this. And it wasn't a Rickroll. No, it wasn't. Uh, it turned out to be literally a 2000 page entire story. And I spent the entire spring break reading up to when he had completed. And then I like religiously followed it as he was finishing it. And um, I just started reading some of his other writing and he had like this entire 10,000 word article on like Bayesian probability. And I just took an afternoon and read through that. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I always thought I was bad at math, but now I understand an advanced probability theorem. And I'm like much more interested in math now. And that actually led to the entire mindset that I was kind of talking to you about when we started talking about this, where I'm very aware that my mind will change because the guy writes about rationality and why humans are very bad at changing their minds. And that's kind of like a little virus that got into my brain when I read that. My mind will change and I should be open to that. I love that. And so and not only that, but you also I heard baked into that story, like having different sense of self-worth when it comes to you and math like like you know you're you said i always thought i was 
did I hear you say it? I also was bad at math, but like yes. now I said, right? So like that, you change your own opinion of yourself. Like that's a big deal. That's hard mm-hmm. to do about anything. Like if I think I'm terrible at swimming, which I did for most of my life, and I suddenly think I'm a good swimmer, like that's huge. So you, if you had that experience with math and like how open is your brain now to, you know, yes. so many other things. And I know that if I put my mind to it now, I can do it. And actually, I know our scheduled time is coming to a close pretty soon here, but I wanted to talk a little bit about your kind of circle for doing because you mentioned swimming, right? Yeah. I thought that was one of the most powerful concepts in the book where you talked about how most people think, you know, the path to doing something is first have the skill, then have the desire, then do it. Mm-hmm. And for you, that kept you from learning to swim for years, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, let me tell the story real quick. So basically, you know, we all have things we can't do and they're, I, you know, they're commonly called fears, right? You know, like I can't public speak or I can't swim, or I can't run a marathon, or I can't write a novel. Like, there's something in your life you want to do right now, but you just don't think you can, okay? Mm -hmm. And for me, that was always swimming. I had ear infections my entire childhood. I had tubes in my ears. I had a traumatic experience growing up. You know, I just fell into a pool, and as I said, I couldn't swim. And so... I eliminated it from my life. Uh, there are two barriers we place in front of doing anything, and they are called can do and want to do before you can actually do. Can do is about capability. You throw me in a pool, it won't be pretty. I can't swim, so I, I don't have the can do. Want to do is about motivation. You throw me in a pool? No, I don't have a bathing suit. I'm hanging out by the barbecue at the pool party. Like I, I, I don't have to cross a body of water with my arms in my life. Like I just, I just like, I just eliminated it. I'm like, no, I, I, I don't live near an ocean. Like I just, it's fine. I don't mm-hmm. want to do it. And then I never got to do, which is the action part. Okay. Then I mentioned Leslie a couple of times on this podcast already. So I can say like, I, I was on my second date with my eventual wife and second date. So already we liked each other on the first date, right? So you go on the second date and over dinner one night, she says to me, so do you like swimming? cue, you know, pause. And I'm like, oh, I don't want her to know I can't swim. I'm embarrassed about that. Mm-hmm. So I, I just said, oh, I'll just put, you know, no, not really. You know, I just, I just said something like that. And you know what she said? She said, she said, ah, oh, no, Sw- swimming is my favorite thing to do in the world. You see, my family has had a cottage for generations on an island, on an island. And Every single morning in the summer, the 20 of us, my 80-year-old grandparents, my 5-year-old cousins, we jump in the lake and we swim around the island. And then she said, well, I guess you can't come. And I was like, oh, oh, oh my gosh. That <laughs> night, without thinking about whether I could do it, or whether I wanted to do it, I just did it. I signed up for adult learn to swim classes at the downtown city of Toronto pool, which if you are listening to this and you're in Toronto, you know, the pool, like that was risky for several reasons, not just, not just a good <laughs> swim. Okay. So I sign up that Tuesday night at seven 30, I'm walking out on the pool deck. My heart is beating faster than when I was walking on like the Ted stage. Okay. I'm confronting a fear. This is like heart palpitations here. I'm wearing my goggles. I'm wearing my life jacket. I walk out on the pool deck and guess what I find? 15 other people who suck at swimming. Like they were from landlocked countries. They had more traumatic experiences than me. So trust formed quickly. It's like Frost Week. Like we're all in this together, you know? <laughs> and so that week they said, why don't you just get in the shallow end? Here, here, take a flutterboard, keep your life jacket on, keep your goggles on, just kind of waltz around a little bit. You know, it's like the water's up to my waist. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, that's pretty easy. 
And then they're like, blew the whistle, and they're like, we're done. I'm like, we're done. Okay, well, I can do that. The next week I go back, and they say, same as last week, keep the life jacket on, keep the goggles on, here's your flutter board. Just, you know, kind of inch towards the deep end a little bit. And I'm like, that's it? They're like, yeah, that's it. And then they blew the whistle, and they're like, you know, we're done. That's all. That's thanks all. Thanks everyone. See you next week. And I'm like, what? So I walk away. I'm like, I can do that. Okay. And then the next week I wanted to do it. And here's the interesting thing. We all think motivation leads to action. But what I learned that day was that action leads to motivation. Mm-hmm. If you just do it, if you just get in the pool, if you just run to the stop sign in your dress shoes, if you just start writing the book in the corner of your laptop screen or whatever, then you think you can do it and then you want to do it. It's it's not a do line. As you said, it's a do circle. It's hard on, on an audio thing to explain the visual, visual but really it's yeah. do leading to can do, leading to want to do, back to do. And it guess what? In, in eight weeks, which is you know a half an hour a week, so it's four hours, I learned to swim. I could do the front crawl and I swam around the island that summer. And when I I tell people that story, they're like, how'd you do it? I'm like, but that's the thing. Our brains get in our own way. Mm -hmm. And if I can say it to you one more way, I would say it is easier to act yourself into a new way of thinking than to think yourself into a new way of acting. Our heads get in the way. Just do it. That's a perfect way of putting it. Oh, man. Yeah. And you know what? I started looking into this, by the way, Thomas, and like, guess what? Isaac Newton, who, who all of us, by the way, if you are ever, if you are remembered 500 years after your life, you did something right. Yeah. You know, or something really wrong, but like one of the two, <laughs> okay? 500 years later. So 500 years ago, this guy, you know, discovered gravity and invented calculus, you know? He may have been the uh, butterfly effect to you finding that Harry Potter book, maybe. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so you know what he says in his first law, okay? Mm. He says, an object in motion will remain in motion unless acted upon by an equal or greater force. Like, put another way, if you start doing something, it's harder to stop. You, 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 you know what I did after Adult Learn to Swim 1 was over? I signed up again. No, I did not take Adult Learn to Swim 2, which I was qualified for. But yeah. I just took the same thing. And then I took it again. I took it four more times. Like I took the series four more times because you know what? I'm like, I shower in the nights now on Tuesday. I got dinner with my my girlfriend beforehand at this great vegetarian place that we love. And like I leave work early those days. Like I just figured it all out. It was harder to stop. It was harder to stop. Yeah. So if you want, if you're listening to this and you want to run a marathon, you don't need the perfect playlist. You don't need the perfect running shoes. You don't need the perfect running partner. You just run to the corner in your dress shoes. The act of doing that will tell you that you can do it and then you'll want to do it. Yeah. Action leads to motivation. I remember I was in my college gym a few years ago and uh, there was a student probably from a foreign country there running around the track in corduroy pants and like a sweater (laughs) and normal shoes. And I was like, that's awesome. I love that. It looks a little funny, but that's awesome. You know that person got to the gym and was like, damn, I forgot my gym clothes. (laughs) And that was just like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going for my run. And and like 90% of us, myself included, might have got to the gym and been like, I don't have my gym clothes. Good. Now I I have an excuse for not going. Yeah. That guy was like, no, it's the opposite. Action leads to motivation. If I get through this day, then I look back. And I have my streak going. I, mm-hmm. I'm not missing a day. It's my rhythm is my routine is preserved. You know, all that stuff re- re- remains. Yeah, exactly. I found that little tiny things can derail me pretty easily. So, in addition to just 
having the streak going, I also have to a lot of times have some sort of other kind of commitment device in place. Mm, let's hear it. Like what? So like for one thing, um, kind of similar story to yours. I started figure skating in January, which is a kind of weird thing for a six foot two bearded man to start doing. <laughs> <laughs> a friend of mine, also six foot two and bearded, wanted to play hockey and he had like never skated in his life. So he was like, dude, let's take this learn to skate class. And I was like, all right, that sounds like a thing that will get me out of my house. Uh, and I went and bought skates. And they tell you when you start ice skating, you should buy figure skates to learn. They're much easier to learn in. I took the dude's advice, bought them. And my entire life, I'd gone to the rink, rented skates. And I was like, I'm horrible at figure skating or I'm horrible at skating in general because my ankles start hurting after 10 minutes. This is the worst thing ever. Who would strap knives to their feet and go on ice in the first place? That's dumb. <laughs> yeah. I got my yeah. new skates and it was like, it couldn't have been more different. Mm. Like the quality really did matter in that case. Angel wings through clouds. Oh my gosh. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so now I, Knives through I do it three days a week and uh, I have a coach now that I've been competing, which is pretty cool, really? but it's like tough to get up at five fifteen in the morning and yeah. go to the rink. So the fact that my coach is going to text me and be like, where are you? You're paying yeah. for this. Why are you yeah. not here? That's what gets me there <laughs> in that the early is, mornings. That, I, and I totally relate to that. But that 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 system you've put in place. But we congratulations. Like I, I, you know, that's just amazing. What a great, like, what an incredible story. I love that. And I I figure skated as a child because in Canada you have to make the call really early about whether you're going into hockey or figure skating as uh -huh. as a boy. And ninety nine percent of boys go into hockey. But as a tiny small. Indian kid, like I, I was afraid of going into hockey. Mm -hmm. I went into figure skating. I was the only boy in it. And after like four years of peer pressure from like my friends at school, I eventually quit. And my parents still to this day, I'm 36 now, say, you know, if you just competed, if you just stuck with it, you would be in the Olympics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that might be parental <laughs> bias, but 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 the but the point is like I, I'm like not only am I am I loving your story, but it's also like really deeply kind of you know, hitting me with a, with a part of my own life. So thank you for sharing that and having the courage to do that. And, and I, and I love that system. The guy yelling at you saying you paid for it. That's fine. Mm -hmm. That's fine. Like, you know, I always tell people to download Headspace, right? You know, the meditation app. Yeah. And, and I love the fact that like you can set it to like, do your, do a reminder for you to do your daily meditation for the first 10 days. And like, if that's what you need, great. And like, you know, I signed up for a transcendental meditation course and I wanted to meditate but wasn't doing it so much so that I thought if I dropped the coin on the course like you, it would force me to do it. And sure enough, uh, as you can expect, it, it did because I was like, yeah. I'm not going to waste that money. So I, I've got to go to these classes and that now I have two or three different avenues into meditation. So now if I don't meditate, I, I have no one to blame but myself and that I don't want. So then I just do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So it's like it's the same roundabout way, but it's behavior change, habit forming, right? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Uh, I, I just got a text from my coach the other day and they were like, hey, those uh, new skates we were going to get for you finally came in from Italy. And Look they're, at you. they're really expensive. So yeah, it's like another way of like factory. Yeah, basically, I am uh, <laughs> very committed to doing it now. Oh, that's amazing. So uh, have you gotten up to the like, are you single LUTs, double LUTs, triple LUTs? No, I am. So I, I just started in January. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. So I've got my pre-bronze moves in the field done and I have quote unquote won one competition. But like you, I am the only guy. So 
there was you got like first <laughs> and last place simultaneously somehow? yeah pretty much <laughs> yeah so I when i'm at the rink it, in the mornings it. it's 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 all either like teenage girls or like six-year-old girls or like these really old ladies and then me and it's great you know actually one what? of the things that you wrote in the book like really solidified just doing this because you wrote down like the regrets of the dying uh mm. and one of them was like i really wish i would have just let myself be myself be happy not care what other people think and that's what i tell myself whenever i go in and do this really embarrassing thing i guess most people think it's embarrassing because when i'm 80 years old i'm not gonna give a crap what someone thought about a six foot two bearded guy figure skating instead of chopping trees down or whatever i think it's fun and it makes me happy right uh, like I love it, and those five greatest regrets of the dying, like they're huge when you look at them. And people, you know, people have said more than anything else, like I wish I'd lived the life true to myself, not the life others told me to live. Like mm-hmm. that is the number one regret, and you, so that should, you know, power whatever decision you have that you aren't sure if other people liked. You know, that should power you to do it because otherwise, it could turn into the biggest regret of your life. You know, yeah, and. Also, like kudos to you because not only are you learning to figure skate, but I think, you know, like all of us, we're also learning, but you're also learning to be comfortable with those feelings. And that's huge. That might be worth more than the figure skating. That might be worth more than anything because that means that for the rest of your life, when you have an unpopular decision to make mm-hmm. that you, you feel is right, you will be much more likely to do it. Whereas yeah. most of us will struggle through those ones. You know, like everyone says I should go to this school because it's ranked higher on every report. But I, when I visited this campus, really liked it. So what yeah. do I do? You know, and, and you should definitely go to the one you liked, <laughs> you know, but but it's hard to do that, especially with the pressures we have from mm-hmm. parents, siblings, you know, following traditions, pathways, you know, scholarship money, whatever. But, you know, the more and more I hear people talk about their favorite things, their favorite relationships, their favorite friends, their favorite travel experiences. It's always, well, it was just, you know, going to Vancouver Island because I'd read a book as a child and I'd always dreamed about going and I finally went and it was the best. Yeah. And of course, everyone said we should go to Hawaii, but I just really wanted to go to Vancouver Island, even though it's not as warm and doesn't have as many sandy beaches, whatever. But like when you hear people tell the stories, you're like, kudos to you. you. You did what you wanted to do. And like, we only get one life. You only have twenty-five to thirty thousand days total. You may as well do what you want. Yeah, I wonder if uh, maybe like once a year I should look at those regrets of the dying and just be like, okay, pretend that you are dying right now. Which of them do you still regret? Like, which of them do you still identify with? I mean, I, I definitely recommend that, and that is a, a habit that I try to do as well. I, I've I've set it up in my tweets. So that it, it pops up every once in a while. Partly Does it just tweet you and say, "What do you regret?" Or something. Well, like because that, that well, well, no, it, it's it's it says you know. So for those that don't know, Nurse Bronnie Ware was a palliative care nurse for years, and the Guardian did an article on her several years ago. That article went you know kind of gangbusters, viral, and it's the five greatest regrets of the dying. In one of the secrets of the happiness equation, I use that as a prompt to provoke people into greater authenticity, and then I give them three tests the Saturday morning test, the bench test, and the five people test mm. to, to then figure out how to be your more authentic self. Yeah. And so that link to that Guardian article or simply the five greatest regrets themselves, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great annual reminder because I think I'm living the life I want to live, but I'm always like, oh, 
I would definitely have that regret. To, like there's always one or two of them that I'm like, oh, I need to work on that. Um, right. So it's it's such a helpful little trope or little reminder that and uh, works for me. I love the bench test. I have told the bench test story in probably two podcast episodes already at this point. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's it. amazing. I can't <laughs> wait to tell, I can't wait to tell Fred because it really, I mean, I tried to, it, I put the story in his words. You know, you hear Louis C.K. talk about like that guy he sits next to on the airplane who's like cursing about not the Wi-Fi not working. Mm-hmm. And then he says later, like, oh, and that was me, by the way. Like, I, <laughs> it was me. I just, I just made it a guy for the story. And like with Fred, who's a friend of mine, you know, I made it Fred in the story. But um, the quick the quick version on that is my friend Fred got, you know, lucky enough to get into a number of Ivy League schools. And rather than read about which one had the shiniest treadmills in, you know, <laughs> college handbooks, which we all do, you're like, oh, you do a tour and like there's this statue and like this cool treadmills. And we have this many holdings in the library. And like this, the residence was built this year. Like that's what we use to make decisions. He just yeah. rented a Jeep. For $200. And for that one week, he drove to every campus he got into, found a bench in the middle of campus, sat on it unperturbed for an hour, no phone, nothing, and listened. And for that one hour, he patiently observed his honest, authentic reaction to the people that were around him, the conversations they were having, the flavor of, of the mood. Did it feel energetic or stressful? Like he just checked. He did the bench test in every Ivy League campus, and eventually he chose Princeton. That was the one that fit for him. Mm-hmm. He ended up having an incredible experience, met his future wife, and he really credits that bench test. Guess what? It took him one week, $200, and an hour at each campus. He just designed a test that helped him sample the thing he was going to put so much stock into later. Yeah. So I say, if you're thinking about a job, do the office tour test. You know, as someone who was working in HR for 10 years, no one ever asked me for an office tour. Like at the end of the interview, they hardly ever say, and can I, do you mind giving me like a five minute tour around the office? Just, you know, not assuming I'm going to get hired, but just so I can see the office. Mm-hmm. And whenever someone asks, I'd say, yeah, but it doesn't happen very often. But you immediately sense the culture and yeah. whether you'd fit into it. If you're thinking about buying a house, it's the sidewalk test, <laughs> you know, like, like these simple little tests help ensure that we're going to like something. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It, it's just a kind of a, a little thought here, but I wonder if doing the office test is actually going to increase your chances of getting hired as well. Because now you're yeah. putting yourself in a different context in the per, uh, in the perception of the interviewer, whereas everyone else, they just are remembered in the one room and that's it. Yeah, so, and that that be. is a great that's a great way to separate yourself. Another way to separate yourself is at the very end of the interview when they say, "Do you have any questions?" Say this question. I'll give you the secret nugget question for those that listened all the way to this part of the podcast. Here you go. It is when people leave this company by choice. What are the one or two reasons they give? And when people leave this company not by choice slash they're fired, what are the one or two reasons that they're asked to leave? And hmm. those two questions will illuminate for you the two biggest cultural pieces you might not fit with or what you'll be measured about at the company, both of which are huge elements of whether you fit there or not. Interesting. All right, Neil, this has been an amazing conversation and I kind of wish I could make it like three hours. <laughs> well, we just have to do it again. We will have to do it again. Yeah. And I would absolutely love to have you back on the show if you've got time in the future. I am going to put the happiness equation on my on my recommended reads page. I have not done it yet because it's far down my to-do list, but I need to get it done. But just right here, I, I want to recommend it to anybody because I really enjoyed it. Did read the entire book far before I interview. <laughs> Sometimes with interviews, I like have to peruse 
like little parts, but I read the whole thing and loved it. So amazing work. If people want to connect with you besides just reading the book, where should they go? Uh, the simplest way is neil at globalhappiness.org. I, I put my, I plaster my email address all over the place because I just love it. I, I, I could care less about the number of emails I get. I, I have a time of the day where I just like responding to emails. So it's one of my most enjoyable things, neil at globalhappiness.org. And if you see the, the sort of the, the URL baked in there, globalhappiness.org, that's the Institute for Global Happiness. And it's got all my books, sample chapters, sample videos, sample resources, free workshops, everything about happiness that I know is on that website. So globalhappiness.org. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming to the show. You're so welcome. And thank you so much for being such a great interviewer. That's a lot of fun. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. And once again, if you want to find those show notes, you'll find them over at CIGpodcast.com. Find that episode 117 link on the page and you'll find all the links to all the things we talked about in this episode. Now, I would highly recommend reading Neil's book if you get the chance. But if you want something a little bit shorter, I'm going to have his TED Talk, The Three A's of Awesome, also embedded in the show notes so you can give that a watch. It's only about 20 minutes and it's really, really powerful stuff. Beyond that, if you want a way to support this show and help it grow, one of the best ways to do so is to go onto iTunes and leave a rating and review. The more ratings and reviews and subscriptions and downloads that it gets on iTunes, the more the machinery behind iTunes knows to show more people this podcast. And that's one of the best ways that you can help it grow. So if you like the show and you want to support it, that's a great way to do it. But really, I just appreciate the fact that you're listening. And once again, hope you enjoyed this episode. I will see you next week. And until then, stay cute.